It's that time again. It's ASGCA Insights, the official podcast of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And now, from our studios in beautiful Brookfield, Wisconsin, it's your host, Mark Whitney. Welcome to ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. My guest today is PGA golfer, World Golf Hall of Fame member, and golf course architect, Davis Love III. Davis, welcome to ASGCA Insights. Thanks, Mark. Look forward to talking to you. Uh, Davis, uh, we were joined on the podcast previously by uh, ASGCA fellow Jack Nicholas, and he referenced the three careers that he has had as golfer, golf course architect, and now assisting his wife, Barbara, in the philanthropic work that they do together. It strikes me that uh, you're a man who's had at least three, if not four, overlapping careers. Champion golfer, Ryder Cup and President's Cup captain, golf course architect, and of course, the work of the Davis Love Foundation. Was that the plan when you were attending high school back in Brunswick, Georgia? No. um, My dad always had a great line. He said, let's just work hard and see how good you can get. He never put limits or expectations. You know, maybe Tiger's dad did a better job of uh, of saying, "Hey, let's let's take over the world and let's let's reach all these goals." But I never really thought, you know, much about Hall of Fame or Player of the Year or uh, Ryder Cup or Presidents Cup or things like that. I, I was just trying to get out there and play golf and, and, as my dad said, see how good I could get, see if I could win some tournaments and and make a career of it. When I hit the tour you know, things started, realization started to hit one that I wasn't a very good chipper and putter. And two, that there was so much more out there. So many things to play for, like trying to make the Ryder cup team. I honestly hadn't paid much attention to it until I got on the tour. And then all of a sudden I wanted to try to make the team. So, and then as a little kid, knowing Jack Nicholas from my dad's major days from the Atlanta classic days when we lived in Atlanta, um, I wanted to be like Jack Nicholas. So that meant uh, listen to Barbara one, um, as you're coming up, give back to the game. You know, obviously we watched him with the Memorial tournament, uh, with so many things jumping in a Honda, you do your part for the charity. You do your part for your team. Jack probably had six or seven careers. He's a pro fisherman. Uh, he's done a whole lot of other things. Um, he was a great dad and granddad and great granddad. So if I can follow along with Jack and all those things, I'll be happy. And and in your first response, it's interesting because you've touched on about three different points that that I was hoping to make during our conversation. So let's uh, sort of unpack this together. Golf clearly was and is a family affair in the Love household. It was that way since you and your brother Mark were born. I know we could spend this entire discussion simply talking about your dad and his influence on you. But can you please tell our audience just a little bit about him? Well, yeah, he was a, um, a college golfer. He was very fortunate to play for Harvey Penick at the University of uh, North Carolina, University of Texas. And then as a, um, as an, a kid, really as a junior, he, he made it to the U S amateur. He got to play in the masters at a very young age. Um, saw a dream of playing on the PGA tour was not, it was not a long hitter, um, was just a good grinder and a, a good chipper and putter and got the ball in the hole real well, played some majors, played some PGA tour events, but then got into being a club pro. And because of his influence um, coming up under Harvey Peanut, uh, became a great teacher. So Mark and I were very lucky. Um, we got exposed to the game day in and day out. Um, it was part of our, our golfing life was, uh, was our mom and our dad taking us to the golf course. And we really didn't know any better. And then, um, 
you know, at the end of his career, he was one of the best teachers in the game. So we were lucky to have that great instruction as well. And then obviously a great role model. The game of golf, when it's certainly played at the highest levels of you have done, as you have done, is largely an individual activity. But so much of competition leading up to that is done as part of a team. Happens in high school, certainly happened with you at the University of North Carolina. What did you enjoy about team competition while you were growing up? And did those memories impact you when you first had the opportunity to compete in things like the Ryder Cup or other team events? Yeah, high school and college uh, golf were just great because it's, you know, a bunch of guys and then and then the ladies team all getting to travel together, play together, practice together. Um, one reason that I enjoyed playing hockey as a kid in Atlanta and then playing basketball some um, when we moved down to St. Simon's Sea Island was just being a part of a group. And then when I got a little bit involved in the Ryder Cup in 91, trying to make the team for Dave Stockton at Kiowa, and then from 93 on, um, the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup, being on those teams is the highlight of my career. And um, it is an individual sport. We spend most of our year grinding away and traveling on our own and, you know, living with our family at home and then our family on the PGA Tour. And it's an individual try to try to beat everybody out their game. But then all of a sudden, we get thrown together for Ryder Cups and President's Cups. And it's it's a highlight. And that's what I like so much about so many of the things I get to do. Our foundation is a team. Our term and operations that run the RSM Classic is a team. Our golf course design company, you know, with Scott Sherman, my brother Mark, and then the contractors that we get to work with. We make a team and we go out and, and build a product and um, get to give back to the game. So pretty much learned at a young age that from my dad, from running golf shops or, or golf digest schools, that uh, being a part of a team is is very, very uh, rewarding, and um, it's a way to reach success is building a great team. As, as a golf fan, you know you can see the attraction that the team events allow for, and that opportunity to have camaraderie and have other people to lean on over the course of essentially a week worth of competition. Uh, take us inside just a little bit, though. Do you, you know, do you have? Other players make suggestions, recommendations, uh, you know, lining up long putts, things of that nature. Is there advice given between athletes that then actually you may be using against each other a week later? <laughs> well, I, like right now, I don't think Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas or Cantley and Shoffley, they're such great partnerships that they're not using it against each other. Um, there's a lot of, of camaraderie that goes into building a two man team or a 12 man team. But um, no, I don't think it's, we still want to beat everybody out there. I mean, I loved playing so many tournaments with Fred couples as a partner, but then when I got in the players championship or a golf tournament, I wanted to beat him just as much as anybody else. But there's, you build up a respect um, that it's not a, um, it's not a dog eat dog. Um, we have to beat this guy. Cause I don't like him attitude. It's, I just want to win the golf tournament and come out on top. If I don't win, I, I sure would like it if Fred won. I think Xander and, and Patrick, they do everything together now, but they still want to beat each other. They play better when they're with each other in, in an individual tournament because they're pushing each other rather than um, worrying about beating each other. And you may have answered my next question, but how did playing in these various team competitions, how did that make you a better golfer on tour? 
I think one making the team gives you confidence. You know, I made the, my first team in 1993. Um, we we did win the Ryder Cup that year in away game. The last time we won an away game, and it gave me confidence that I could compete not only with those 12 guys, but with anybody in the world, and I could compete under the biggest pressure. And I think that's why you see now Max Homa was so adamant that he was going to make that presence come team last year. And now all he's talking about is Ryder Cup. He wants to make the Ryder Cup team. He wants to challenge himself. He wants to be on those teams. He wants to be a part of the guys that are the best in the world. And, and it, it inspires you to play. I mean, I'm inspired just, just watching these guys out there playing. Now, you know, JT, Jordan, Sam Burns, Max Homa, they're, they're all inspired by being on that team and seeing how great those guys are and, and how hard they have to work to keep up. So I was always pushed and inspired by the guys I played with. 91, you're up for consideration. You don't get selected to the team. What happens in that two-year period? What, was it a, a fire that was lit under you a little bit more to, to try and reach something that, that you thought you were pretty close to? Right. Back then, you could only get in the Ryder Cup by making points in top tens in PGA Tour events or majors. And um, I came really close. I had some some uh, clerical errors that I, I, I had a couple top tens that didn't count. And Dave Stockton was really nice to um, consider me, sent me up to Kiowa to play some practice rounds. So over those next two years, I felt like I had a taste of it. Even though I didn't play on the team, I talked about making the team. I kind of practiced like I might have going to make the team. I saw the course. I watched it on TV. My buddies all played. Um, guys that I knew I could compete with were playing. So I was inspired to make the next team. Um, it was Tom Watson. It was going to the Belfry. So much history with um, the Ryder Cup over there. So I was so excited to, to try to make it. And then I was very lucky to make that team and then make five more after it. Um, I had a great run in the Ryder Cup, and that was really my focus at the beginning of every year was um, let, let's get some points and make make the Ryder Cup team. And then fortunately, the tour, um, in my window of playing well, came up with the President's Cup. So then I got to do it every other year. So what's tougher, standing over a putt in a Ryder Cup competition or standing off to the green and watching one of your players standing over a putt in Ryder Cup competition? watching is much harder you can't yeah you don't have any control and no matter what you say i've learned not to walk out on the, the course and talk to the guys unless i absolutely have to because it's it doesn't help them very much but um playing at least you felt like you had some control you could do your routine you could rely on your partner somehow get over it standing there watching and knowing the pressure the guy's under and knowing what could happen things that they're not thinking <laughs> I'm thinking like, what if he misses? What if he has to live with us? Um, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to stay on the sidelines, whether it's your kids or your, your teammates or, um, as a captain, your players. So I'm not sure if I've got all the numbers correct, but what I've got written down is six Ryder cup appearances as a player captain in 2012. And again, in 2016 with the win at Hazeltine, and you're going to serve as a Ryder cup vice captain for the fourth time in Rome this fall. And that's on top of this, this past year, leading the U.S. team to a President's Cup victory at Quail Hollow. So the question on the captaincy side, what is the draw for you that has you to keep coming back to do this again and again? Well, one, it's um, you don't want to miss. <laughs> the best place to watch a Ryder Cup or President's Cup is inside the ropes on a cart. So one, it's selfish. 
I just love being around it. Um, love watching it. Um, two, it's giving back because I had so many great captains that, you know, put two years of their lives into running this team, organizing the team, doing everything they can to make it an unbelievable experience. You know, the first one I went to, Tom Watson told us in the New York airport, getting ready to get on the Concord, guys, you're going on a great adventure. He didn't say, hey, we have to win the Ryder Cup. He made it so grand. And for so many captains that did that for me, I love giving back. Now, I'd rather be behind the scenes helping Zach Johnson. No media. <laughs> um, packing boxes or, or, or getting tees or um, running guys out to the range. I like that part of it. Um, Max Homa was shocked at the Presence Cup when I came down at 2.30 in the morning, helped him with his luggage, made sure he's checked in the hotel. And then a couple of days later was cleaning his clubs while um, he was hitting balls. He's like, I, I can't believe you're doing that. I said, Max, you're going to figure this out. All your captains, we just want to help you get ready to play. We're, we're not here to tell you what to do. We're just here to help you get ready to play and have the best chance to win. And I love doing that. Um, I hope this is my last time because some of the guys are probably getting tired of me. Um, you know, Cantlay uh, and I have a great relationship, but I'm sure he's, he's ready for uh, some new blood. And um, we've got Zach Johnson. Obviously, this year we had Webb Simpson last year in Charlotte. Um, we got some new guys in the pipeline. So maybe this is my last time. So before I move on, one memory from the 2016 Ryder Cup, what immediately comes to mind for you when that tournament is mentioned? Well, Arnold Palmer first, because he passed away um, right before the team got there. Um, Ricky Fowler sitting down at our first lunch and ordering Arnold Palmer for his drink and kind of setting the tone for the week. We had Arnold's bag on the first tee that Friday morning. We went 4-0. and We just kind of had a, an Arnold Palmer um, you know, vibe. There's a lot of things in golf you know, Ben Crenshaw's masters, things that just seem like they were meant to be. But, um, you know, that week, uh, losing Arnold, but remembering Arnold kind of the first thing that pops in. And then the relief of those guys after not winning, um, a Ryder cup for so many years to, to, to win it, when it decisively play so great, um, in front of the home crowd, I was just so happy that uh, the monkey was off their back and that they got a win. My guest, Davis Love the Third. Davis, let's talk a little golf course architecture now. Uh, there are different words in the dictionary for game and sport. Uh, many people, like myself, enjoy playing the game of golf, while a very small percentage compete in the sport. How does your career in the sport assist you in designing golf courses that are often played by those who are simply out to enjoy the game? Well, that's a, a great way to divide. Yeah, there's there's a few expert players in the world, and there's very few that hit it as far as the, the top guys do now. Um, so my playing days um, have certainly taken me to so many great golf courses around the world. I've gotten exposed to um, some of the best um, old and new golf courses in the world. So I think uh, I have a, a great experience on, on golf courses, both good and bad. <laughs> But um, I understand from my playing professional golf, which means you play a lot of pro-ams. So you see, I don't always just see, you know, Tiger Woods and Fred Couples. On Wednesdays or on Mondays, we see the average golfers, you know, from beginners all the way to low handicaps. My mom was an expert player, a single-digit handicap for 
probably 40 years of her life. She, she could shoot her age um, from 73 to 87. She could shoot her age. Um, she was a great player, but she didn't hit it very far. Force carries um, too far uh, back um, forward tees really um, hurt her and made her not enjoy the game. Um, so, and I've got granddaughters that are starting to play. So I, I've seen every aspect of the game. So I, I don't just think I have to build for Will Zalatoris and Cam Young and John Rahm. I have to build for everybody that plays. And I encourage um, everybody we work with to think we need to go longer and we need to go shorter. And I think, you know, 40 plus years of competitive golf have really helped me with that. I'd have no problem with you going out and designing a course for Mark Whitney. In fact, I think that should be happening far more often. Thank you. Uh, yeah, wide, wide fairways are not bad. Back to Jack Nicholas. Um, I always did pretty well on Nicholas courses because you had to hit it long. You had to hit it high. and um, You had to, had to be a great ball striker. So um, I was always looking forward when, I, when we play a Jack Nicholas course. But, yeah, you, you have to consider – that the game's supposed to be fun, supposed to be interesting, supposed to be challenging, but it's not supposed to be impossible. Hard is hard is easy. Um, interesting and memorable is uh, is a much better goal. Uh, mentioned the University of North Carolina previously. Uh, you, you're doing some work down there these days, aren't you? Yes, we're uh, renovating um, the Finley Golf Course, which has been renovated since I was a player there, um, but needed an update. They needed a, a much bigger practice facility, which that's the way college golf is going is um, the University of Alabama and the University of Georgia are in a player and a facilities contest. You know, the better facilities you have, you can recruit players so much better. And if you're a, a big time college golf program, you better have a pretty nice facility or the better players are going to go somewhere else. So we've been lucky to um, years ago work with the University of Georgia on their course more recently, University of Virginia, and now we're working um, at my alma mater, Chapel Hill, and then also working on a project for the University of Alabama, where my son went. So, some reason we're we're on a little bit of a roll on uh, on university courses, but it's still there's a membership that plays the university course, which is the students and the faculty. Um, there's a golf team that plays there that needs a different type of practice facility than just the driving range, the practice range for the course. So it's fun to work with the schools. It's fun to work with the coaches and, uh, and build for um, a little bit different clientele than just a, a club membership. Remember we have spoken previously on the podcast with ASGCA past president, Jan Bell, Jan, then she talked about not only designing with college courses, but she talked about uh, enjoying watching college teams practice on courses uh, and that it's helped her as a designer because she watches how coaches are smart enough to put their players in different positions and, and, and not just go to the back tee and hit it as hard and as far as you possibly can, but to really work a golf course. And she said working with colleges and working with college teams has actually helped her in her design for, again, the everyday player. Well, I know just doing some research for the University of Virginia's course, the, the coaches told me what they liked and facilities that they liked. So I would go and visit them and see um, things that other coaches and other, other teams designed in their facilities. And I think, you know, I grew up on just, there was a driving range and there was a putting green and hopefully there was a bunker to hit out of. Um, now it's specific practice 
you, you have to have a short game area. You, you, now everybody wants a putting course or a short course. And then these training facilities like the golf performance center at sea Island is a gigantic building with six or eight bays, all the technology in there. And then they challenge us to build their putting. One putting green needs to be semi-flat. One putting green needs to have a lot of break. We need a deep bunker, shallow bunker. We need chip and runs. We need all these things. Um, and then the golf teams take that to another level because the coach knows how he wants to practice. Um, and again, they are building these facilities, one to make better players, but also to get better players to come. So um, Michael Jordan's course down there in South Florida has the most unbelievable practice facility. We keep hearing it over and over again. Things like that um, draw people to the course or draw people to the university. And, um, you know, what we want is for, for these teams to have everything they need uh, to compete and to get better and, and also to recruit. Worked with a couple of ASGCA members along the way. Paul Cowley, I know, worked out of your office for a while. And now Scott Sherman is a member of your team as well. Uh, talk about some of the work that's happening. You've got a restoration progress uh, project happening out at Glenmore Country Club in Denver these days. Yeah, Glenmore is, is a very um, old um, Pete Dye golf course. Obviously, golf in the in the Cherry Hills area um, is very famous. And um, it. Glenmore is a very popular, um, big club, a lot of members, and they, um, they just needed an update on their golf course. And we're trying to bring back a lot of Pete's, um, style and design. The, the course had kind of, um, every, everything kind of flattened out a little bit. The bunkers had gotten a little round and plain, um, and obviously try to modernize it as much as possible. It's a pretty tight, uh, little golf course, but trying to get a little bit of length, uh, a little bit of room. And um, it's been fun working on it. Anytime you get to see something that Pete and I did, it's exciting. And then um, we got a lot of other projects going on around the country, some renovations and some new stuff. So it's it's nice to be busy. And, yes, we worked with Paul Cowley for a while until kind of a, a little bit of a, a downturn in the golf course economy. And we had built a course down in Cabo Diamante with Paul. And Paul liked it so much, he just stayed down there. <laughs> He's still there. Um, done a lot of work for, for Diamante on, on another golf course and then uh, on their facilities. So Paul was got us really going in the business with a good friend of my father's, Bob Spence, who was on the construction side. So they got us up and running and um, been working with Scott now over 10 years. And we've been very blessed to have uh, very talented people to guide us through this process. You got to get back to the to the Pete Dye course for just a moment. Uh, does uh, uh, working on one of his courses mean that they're going to be railroad ties? They had a lot of bulkheads already on this golf course, <laughs> so yes, Pete, you have to have some wood uh, somewhere on most Pete courses. Um, and you know, he and I talked about that some. You know, like TPC and um, Oak Tree and and places like like the why and the, and the where and the how much. And, um, I think, you know, Pete would, uh, Pete would go all in sometimes on straight up and down. And sometimes they'd be laying down and sometimes they'd be out of play. And like at Harbor town, there'd be a variety. So we brought that back a little bit at the plantation course at sea Island. Um, we, we put some in, in a bunker, put some lay down walls on the, the lakes that needed work on the bulkheads and put some, um, even out of play a little bit. Uh, I just love that look. Um, I know Pete probably saw that Scotland 
Ireland back in the day and some of the old masters used it. He just, sometimes he'd go a little over the top, but I love looking at it and I love playing on it. And again, Pete Dye golf courses have been very good to me in my career. <laughs> and he was a great friend of my dad's and uh, I was lucky enough to get to hang around him a lot. He'd come out and watch me play a lot at, at Harbor town or, um, down at the players championship or, or over in um, new Orleans. I remember walking around with him a couple of times there right after that course opened. So I was very lucky that, um, that Pete um, kind of took me under his wing a little bit and would, would talk to me some. Did uh, 17 at the TPC treat you well over your career or uh, did you uh, uh, have to curse Alice out once or twice for where your ball wound up? Well, more than once or twice, but not Alice. <laughs> you could never get mad at her. <laughs> I got to sit so many dinners like PGA uh, past champions dinners and, and PGA tour board stuff. When they would get invited, I would always seem to, um, to get to be around them. And she was so nice. You would never, ever get mad at her because it's your golf ball that went in the water, not hers. But 17 was really good to me. I'd, I'd have to say over the, the course of my career, obviously I won there twice. So I, I avoided um, disasters when I got around the lead and made some birdies. Now I did have one year, I think it was the year Lee Jansen won that, you know, maybe I could have birdied the last two and I hit it in the lake and, um, and didn't have a chance to win. But, um, overall, there's a lot of water on that course, but overall it's, it was, it was pretty good to me. Interesting times that uh, we, we've all been living in and simply looking at it from the business side of things over the past three years or so, uh, the influx of new golfers into the game and folks returning to the game uh, has been wonderful to see, of course. Uh, from the business side that you are in, uh, more projects coming forward or, or the acceleration of projects that we have seen from architects all around North America, uh, whether it's redesigns or just bunker projects, green projects, that type of thing. Um, not as many in, in recent years, brand new courses, but on the other hand, it sounds like you guys have one that's happening down in Florida. Yes. You know, COVID's created, um, you know, a lot of tragic things over the last few years, but not for golf. It's, um, it's really blown golf up. Um, you know, just on the business side, you know, being involved a little bit here at sea Island, you know, running a PGA tour event, being on the board of the tour so much. I kind of know a little bit about the business of golf and it's all really taken off. Um, it was in a good place and now it's, now it's in a great place, which means these clubs are starting to see, um, you know, some financial stability and they know there's so many old golf courses that, as you know, that need cart pass, need bunkers, need new pump stations. And the next thing you know, like, well, why don't we just renovate the whole thing while we're doing well and more people are playing golf. We need new grass and, um, we need a new update. So the renovation business is great. You know, I think we were at a point maybe four or five years ago where there were maybe too many courses. And now maybe we're starting to see that trend and maybe there's not quite enough. Um, the great courses, um, the accessible courses are all full. So, um, we're starting to see that. And yeah, we, we did a little project for St. Joe paper over in the Panama city area years ago, a little six hole, um, fun family course. And now doing an 18 hole course to complement what they have over there at watercolor and water sound. So that one's under construction. And then, um, even though it's a university team, um, alumni kind of facility at the university of Alabama, that is a new project as well. And then, um, the rest of it is, 
and some of them aren't really renovations. They're a new golf course on an, on an existing site. Some of them, uh, Chapel Hill, we're not doing tee to green, but, um, a lot of them are now are just, we, we need, we understand everything's old and tired. We need to just blow it up and start over and, and come up with a new style. So those are fun as well. You mentioned a six hole facility. Are you seeing more things along the lines of either three, six uh, hole loop type of things that, that you might be getting into? Yeah. Most clients, whether it's a resort or, um, a private club, they have so many people playing golf now that whatever they can add to give people a place to, um, to play and enjoy. So a short course is on most clubs, um, wish list. And now a putting course uh, is a really popular thing. And I didn't understand really when, when we first started hearing about putting courses and short courses, how, um, you know, obviously at the masters, you want to, you want to play the, the par three, but now for kids, for beginners, for a quick round, the short course, whether it's three holes, six holes, nine holes, and you know, some of them are odd numbers like 13 or 17, um, whatever you can fit on your property, it's a great place to get people started in the game or a quick round of golf. Um, and then the putting course has just blown me away. Um, they put one behind the lodge at sea Island and you can see it out of the restaurants. You can see it out of the pro shop. You can, you can see it from their new little beach club pool and it just draws people to the game. So, um, you know, places like Pinehurst that put in a big one, um, that have really, the public now has seen so many of them and it goes all the way back to the Himalayas at St. Andrews and places like that. But, um, it's just a fun thing to do in the evening or, or before dinner or, or to take the kids to do and, and not have to spend four or five hours playing golf. It's still fun for you, isn't it? Oh yeah. I, you know, if you take me outside and let me do pretty much anything, I'm, I'm happy with golf, hunting, fishing. Um, but the golf course design is so creative. Again, working with a team, um, Mark and Scott and I have traveled so much in the last three or four months. It's been a lot of fun. I've been a little bit injured. Um, haven't played that much golf, but, um, I'm just inspired to go out and do things. Now, every once in a while, they'll let me get on a piece of equipment and play with it. Um, so then that's kind of the bait to get me, um, to a site. I, I look forward to the day where I, I can admit that I'm too old to play golf and, and stop <laughs> playing competitive golf and then go park myself over in Panama city for a couple weeks and learn more about the construction side of it. The actual building of the course is, is what I'm kind of into. Mark and Scott will be looking at the plans and I'll be over standing in a bunker watching the guy with the excavator trying to, to learn the tricks. So, um, I got that a little bit from Pete Dye. He challenged me to, to get on the machines and learn how to do it. So I would know what I was asking people to do. And, um, I love it. Yeah. It's, There's a little, a little Pete inc- Dye and Bill Core in you there is what it sounded like. The, the, well, so Tom Weber, it's my caddy's brother, my, my caddy, Jeff Weber, for a long time. His brother, Tom Weber, works for McCurrick Golf, one of their lead um, shapers and project managers. He's now my bulldozer coach. He, like, helps me with my, with my uh, bulldozing. When we built the course for Sea Island, I got to spend a lot of time with him uh, on the equipment. And um, I really like – we have a bunch of great um, contractors we work with, but I have all the codes to the McCurrick golf equipment. So whenever I go to one of their jobs, I can, I can jump on stuff. 
I didn't even have a chance to ask you where did the where did the architecture bug come from for you? It, we've all been out on the course, and 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 you know said you know that darn architect when you've hit whatever shot that you've hit that wasn't particularly good. But what lit a fire for you to to be, get to the design side? Well, I think for Mark and I, our, our dad was more than just um, you know a club pro. He was into all aspects of the game. And he would get the graph paper and he would doodle things at Atlanta country club. Or when we got to sea Island, he was always um, coming up with ideas and he got to help them. They bought a, an existing course that had gone bankrupt on the Island, the Island club. And he helped them get it back into shape. He uh, shrunk some of the greens. He did a lot of drawing. And I think that got us started. And then him thinking about practice facilities more than golf courses you know, how to design tees. He built one of the first um, hitting bay sheds that, that I had ever seen at Sea Island. He dreamed about the performance center and practice greens and, and target greens. So things like that. I think we got everything everything that we like and love about golf um, probably just came from, from our dad as kids. You can follow him on Twitter at Love3GolfDesign. That's Love the Number 3 Golf Design. Or visit the website, LoveGolfDesign.net. My guest has been Davis Love the Third. Davis, continued great success with everything you've been doing and success for you coming up in Rome, hopefully later on this year. Thank you. Uh, I'll look forward to helping Zach Johnson out and then um, getting busy on these golf courses. We've been very blessed and uh, love um talking to you guys and watching all the great work that the society uh, architects are doing. Thank you for listening to ASGCA Insights. I'm Mark Whitney. You can find past episodes of this podcast and more information about golf course architecture at ASGCA.org or download insights from Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or Spotify. Thank you for listening. And until next time, so long.